Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. Welcome to our very last deep dig into evidence law. Today we're going to be looking at the thorny subject of hearsay and exceptions, and as you can imagine, It's a pretty difficult conceptual subject, but then once this one is finished, that's really the last of the deep digs that we need to do into the different areas of evidence. So for that, we can be very grateful. After we finish hearsay, what I plan to do in the next discussion is to wrap up the different areas of evidence that we've had a look at and consolidate some of the problem-solving methodologies that I've been suggesting along the way. So in the next discussion, which will be the last discussion on evidence at all uh, at this point before we shift to problem solving, which we'll do at the end of the doctrinal uh, uh, discussions in the other areas, I'll just go through some of those more difficult subjects all the way from the beginning where we talked about competence and compelability, then privilege, and consolidate some of those trickier areas and just remind you about those elements of problem solving that I would commend you to discuss As far as problem solving is concerned, in our resources, I'm going to upload a summary of the last few bar exams and group them according to the areas of evidence that they analyse and discuss. So at your convenience and at your leisure, you can start looking back through those old problems to help you to cement your problem-solving methodology. You may wish, for instance, to have a look at two exams from five or six runs ago and just have a look at the problems, have an effort at trying to solve them using the legislation and the, the major cases that we've had a look at and then see if you can gather confidence in the basics of applying the law to the facts of those cases. Not under exam conditions, give yourself twice as long as you need and the answer will probably be half as good as you need. But it's really just to become fluent in the transition between looking at what the law is and considering how you might apply it to different sets of facts. And then as our discussions continue, we will look at ethics next and then criminal procedure and eventually civil procedure And once those more thorough analyses and discussions have finished, then we'll start looking at past papers and we can do them from cover to cover because by that stage, we can have a look at the last couple of papers or three papers that you might have um, spared in your practices until the very end. And then you can have a a very clean go under quasi-exam conditions at those last few. So we need to look at the rule against hearsay and its exceptions. And traditionally, this has been an area where candidates have been a little uncomfortable, maybe not so much in relation to the division of law, which, as we'll discuss in the coming half an hour, is reasonably straightforward. But in my view, it creates difficulties with application in practice. So what we see time and time again is certainly undergraduate, postgraduate students, but then also bar exam candidates not feeling confident in coming to a preliminary conclusion as to whether evidence is hearsay or not. And for reasons that will become clear, that needs to be determined quite early in your problem-solving methodology because your answer is going to branch out depending on whether your primary conclusion is that evidence is hearsay and therefore prima facie inadmissible unless it falls within an exception on the one hand 
or whether it's admissible in some other way under Section 60 on the other. Alas, for the candidates, that's an early question. It's not the last question that you need to answer. So if you're not confident with the answer to that question, then it can compound the amount of time that you might need to spend on uh, the problem in the latter parts. But let's start at the beginning and then I'll speak more to that um, as time goes on. The rule against hearsay you may remember from practice, you may remember from your studies at university, it's, it can't be overlooked in any evidence course and so your lecturers would have gone into it in quite a bit of detail, you might have thought. Firstly, under the Evidence Act, section 59 in particular, 59 subsection 1, renders inadmissible evidence of a previous representation made by a person if the purpose of tender is to prove the existence of a fact, that it can reasonably be supposed that the person intended to assert by the representation. Now, that is complex language. The way that I would suggest that you identify a hearsay problem before you get to this point is you're looking for certain features of a fact pattern that will make you understand that it's a hearsay problem early if you can identify them and they are these you're looking for an out-of-court declaration so this is before the door of court and before a witness has given evidence or before a witness could give evidence something has been uttered in some way or another so it could be that before the door of court a person has made a complaint of offending that happened to them for instance that's what we call an out-of-court declaration. And so for problem solving, you're looking for some representation, whether it's by words or whether it's by conduct. And where I mean representations by conduct, I mean, for instance, by nodding. Um, so you might think that if you saw a witness nod, then it means something and you can read that as assertive conduct. But usually it relates to words, either spoken words or written words. So you're looking for an out-of-court declaration either by words or conduct and out-of-court means simply before the door of court, before the witness has given evidence or has had the opportunity to give evidence. So firstly, ask who is the out-of-court declarant? And then the second point is who is the in-court reporter? So where a hearsay issue arises will be where there's been some out-of-court declaration in one way or another, words, conduct, in writing, and it's being sought to be led usually through another person in court. Under the Evidence Act, unlike the previous common law, a hearsay problem will also arise if a witness is giving evidence about their own out-of-court declarations. So the problem-solving triggers don't change. You're always looking for some out-of-court declaration, whether it's words, whether it's conduct, whether it's in writing, and then an in-court reporter. Now, under the Evidence Act, the in-court reporter can be another person saying, oh, and then I saw her say dot, 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 heard her say dot, dot, dot. But it could be that the witness is narrating their own out-of-court declaration. Once you see that there is an out-of-court declaration and once you see that there is an in-court reporter, the next stage of problem solving puts us squarely in that position of 59 subsection 1. So now we'll have a second read of it and appreciating what a previous representation is. Note that a witness, whether it's a witness narrating their own out-of-court declaration or a witness narrating another person's out-of-court declaration will not be permitted to 
if the purpose of those words, whether they're spoken, whether they're written, whether there's conduct that's assertive, is relied upon to prove the existence of a fact that the out-of-court declarant intended to assert, okay? So we're really looking for the purpose of the words being uttered, the words being written, the conduct being asserted. So if the person is intending to assert using the words that they are speaking, writing, or the conduct that they are asserting, then it raises a red-hot hearsay issue and that evidence is prima facie inadmissible. So though it sounds a little repetitive, um, fact patterns that lead to a hearsay problem are out-of-court declarants and in-court reporters. And then the next stage of the analysis is what is the purpose of tender? Is the purpose of tender to use the very words spoken, the very words written, the very conduct asserted? And that is something that the person intended to assert. If so, then it's hearsay and prima facie inadmissible. And though I'm probably going over old territory, you know, back to what your uni lecturers said, the reason why the common law originally and now the Evidence Act is reluctant to admit this evidence is because it's not considered to be the best evidence. If a person is narrating what they said out of court or if another person is narrating what a person said outside court, why don't we just get the person to tell, tell the court what happened? And sometimes, particularly under the common law where it was exclusively another person, there's also the, the reluctance of the court to admit the out-of-court evidence without having the out-of-court declarant available for cross-examination. So the genesis of the concerns around hearsay relate to the idea that it's not the best evidence. The out-of-court declarant may not be available for cross-examination. And on those bases, there was a distinct problem with respect to reliability and the weight to be attached to that evidence. Some last few introductory uh, features. Um, previous representation, this is bullet point five on slide two, means a representation made otherwise than in the course of giving evidence in the proceeding. So I've used out-of-court declaration. The Evidence Act uses previous representation. It means the same thing before the door of court. And representation is broad enough to include all of those descriptors that I've given. Express uh, representation, where a person says exactly what they mean. Implied representation, which is where a person may use words or conduct that say one thing but might suggest something else and you imply um, the meaning. So to keep returning, to, it seems, to the same issue of assertive conduct in relation to a person who is drunk. If you could think back to the example that I've used before and the idea of observing a person who is giving off every assertion that they're drunk without actually saying, I am drunk. So it might be the empty glasses in front of them. It might be the fact that you're at a pub. It might be the fact that they're stumbling. It might be the fact that they're slurring their words. They may not intend or give any express indication that they're drunk. But that is representative conduct and you can imply from that conduct that the person is indeed affected by alcohol. And it continues, representation may be inferred from conduct. It didn't, doesn't necessarily need to be communicated or seen by another person. So a person recording their innermost thoughts in a diary is making an out-of-court declaration, even if they don't intend that anyone else sees that diary except for dear diary. And even if it's not communicated, then it's an out-of-court representation. So under the common law, it might be that that was the end of the discussion. So if it's prima facie hearsay and inadmissible, then that might be the end of that evidence. And that's the last we'll hear of the evidence of that complaint. 
all the evidence that's given by, for instance, a homicide victim immediately before they were killed or someone else who may not necessarily be available to the court. But the way that the Evidence Act works is that a raft of exceptions arise and on that basis, even if your uh, first conclusion is that the evidence fits within the hearsay rule and it's prima facie inadmissible, then that's not the end of the discussion. I have encapsulated most of the main exceptions to the hearsay rule on the slide following number three, and we'll go through each of those in turn. Now, note the way that the Evidence Act works is, and I'll just come to the question in just a moment, under Section 60, if evidence is relevant for a non-hearsay purpose, then the hearsay rule does not apply. So the first division that you see of the evidence, once you've managed to stumble your way through who the out-of-court declarant is and the in-court reporter, and you've um, tried to consider the purpose of admissibility of the evidence, if evidence of an out-of-court representation has been admitted for any other evidentiary purpose, the hearsay rule does not apply. And we've seen some of these. We've seen evidence of previous representations that might be admissible and adduced under the credibility rules. So going all the way back to, I think, our third discussion, when we were looking at the credibility rules, you'll remember that if the procedures were followed adequately and the rules of admissibility were followed, then, for instance, a prior inconsistent statement or a prior consistent statement might be admitted. They're examples of Section 60 exceptions. So those previous representations have been admitted for other evidentiary purposes and accordingly, their hearsay quality for the purpose of admissibility is disregarded. You might think back fondly to lawyers in 2009 when the Victorian Evidence Act was first introduced, when we first started understanding how these credibility rules worked and how it seemed to be a bit rough to the hearsay rules that we had studied so closely under the common law to think that they could be bypassed so effectively by Section 60 of the Evidence Act, but that's precisely how they work. Now, the question is, going back to your example of a drunk's conduct, would a third-party observer not have that evidence admitted through the lay opinion rules, that is, they're giving a recount of what they perceived with their senses? Well, it could be either. So we could have a lay observer giving evidence of the narrative of what they observed. This was such a good teaching example for opinion evidence and ad hoc um, experts. And the idea, maybe everyone feels like an ad hoc expert when they're at the pub, but a person who is reasonably experienced at narrating the events uh, could have given that contextual evidence, which is, of course, they were drunk, simply on the basis of the, um, their opinion expressed, having narrated all of the circumstances that gave rise to the opinion, that evidence could have been admitted under the opinion rules. And indeed, that would be an example of evidence that was admissible under Section 60 of the Evidence Act. But further and separately, if it wasn't being relied upon as that evidence of opinion, and the person was simply describing it as assertive conduct, which is the person might be saying, I'm not drunk, but every other indician of their assertive conduct was suggesting that was precisely what they were. That's another example of assertive conduct. It would be admissible essentially under both. 59.1 is an example of assertive conduct and therefore prima facie inadmissible as hearsay subject to exceptions. But then also under Section 60, it would be admissible as opinion evidence. 
Now, returning to section 60, um, one of the other subtleties that you may remember from earlier studies or you may have long forgotten, um, optimistically thinking you'd never have to uh, recall these fine points, other ex examples of evidence that's relevant for a non-hearsay purpose were referred to in our earlier studies in the common law as original evidence. So sometimes a statement is made not to prove the words that were used, but the fact that it was made. Now, this is a real subtlety, and I'll speak back to this point as we start doing lots and lots of problems when we um, start looking at revision and problem-solving technique and so forth. This was referred to under the common law as original evidence. It's almost used as a circumstance rather than the words themselves, just to try to spark old memories. The leading case at the common law of subramanium was one of these examples. Subramanium was an example of a gentleman who was charged with possessing a weapon. He claimed duress and further claimed in his evidence that there were terrorists who had spoken to him and who had insisted that he carry this weapon. Now, in that case, the court held, and it was a, a, an English case, it didn't matter what particular words the terrorists used. Instead, the value of those words was as original evidence of Supermanium's state of duress, if the jury accepted it. So the words that, that were used could almost be seen as a bubble that infected Supermanium. It didn't matter the precise words that were used because the words used by the terrorists weren't relevant or admissible to a fact and issue. Instead, they were indirectly relevant to Supermanium's state of mind. And we'll look at state of mind examples. Under 66A of the Evidence Act, the hearsay rule doesn't apply to states of mind, states of intention, states of knowledge. And another example of that is esoteric knowledge, which you might have heard about if you've observed countless criminal trials. From time to time, where a person indicates, for instance, knowledge of a crime scene that only a person present would know, or if you like crime investigation you know, channels, revelations from the murderer, details only they would know. Esoteric knowledge is relevant, not the words that are used, but the fact that they are known. So that's another example of evidence that's admissible almost as a bubble, as a circumstance, rather than the words themselves. But as I say, Section 66A expressly deals with that under the legislation. So if you have fond memories of original evidence at common law, that's now dealt with under 66A of the Evidence Act. So in relation to problem solving, question one, what is the previous representation? So focus on the language used in the Act. Whether you're assisted by my suggestion about who's the out-of-court declarant, what's the declaration, who's the in-court reporter or not, you need to identify what the previous representation is. But my suggestion is, especially while you're fumbling through early problem solving, it might help to be able to spot that person and to be able to figure out how they made an assertion. Was it by words? Were they written words? Was it assertive conduct? Who's the in-court reporter? It's usually a different person. It could be a document. It could be the same person. So that sets up the hearsay problem nicely. Once you've spotted it, you can't unspot it. So that's the reason why I go through in painstaking detail how to get started. Then the next point is, what's the purpose of tendering the evidence? As I mentioned in the introduction, this is where candidate after candidate loses their confidence. 
So you need to consider whether you need to use the words themselves. Is it evidence of a fact? It can reasonably be supposed the person intended to assert. If so, it's hearsay and prima facie inadmissible. Or is it for some other purpose under section 60? If so, the hearsay rule doesn't apply. So my take home suggestion here is that is the most tricky part of your analysis of the hearsay problem to develop proficiency and confidence in figuring out whether it is relied upon for the very words that are used and whether the maker intended to assert those. If so, you confidently conclude it's hearsay and prima facie inadmissible subject to the exceptions or if it's relied upon for some other purpose, maybe it's credibility, maybe it's original evidence, maybe it's a circumstance, then it might be admissible under section 60 or one of those other exceptions. So that is that difficult division. Then once you've figured that out, there's one little note that's almost uh, invisible, it's so small in, the, in slide four. Note under section 60, if evidence is admissible for any other purpose other than hearsay, then section 60 does not limit that evidence to first-hand repetition. And my second note is that if there are significant risks of misuse, that is, even though the evidence may be relevant and admissible as a prior inconsistent statement, there's far too much risk that it's going to be used for a hearsay purpose, then you might consider 136 that allows the trial judge to limit its purpose. If it is hearsay and inadmissible, then you need to consider whether any of the exceptions to the rules apply. And there they're listed. Civil proceedings, section 63 and 64. Criminal proceedings, 65 and 66. In relation to that group of four, it's limited to first-hand repetition, which I'll go into in a moment. And the out-of-court declarant needs to be competent. That's section 62. So there are two preconditions to 63 to 66. 66A I've referred to. So if a person is making a contemporaneous representation as to intention, state of mind, state of knowledge, then that is relevant and admissible and the hearsay rule doesn't apply. So that is our legislative recognition of what a common law we used to call original evidence. And I'll come to that in a bit in due course as well. But I'm sure if asked, I, anyone who is listening to this will be able to tell me something about their state of mind. Are they stressed? Are they bored? Are they hungry? So right at this moment, if you could reveal something about your knowledge, state of mind, intention, etc., then that provided it's relevant is admissible under 66A. It's considered inherently reliable. 69 business records is fairly regularly examined, just like some of the others. Electronic communications, I draw to your attention, section 71. And of course, our old friend, admissions. We've just finished looking at admissions. So I've put that in because it, you can recognise it and wave to it as an old friend, because you know that admissions are relevant and admissible as an exception to the hearsay rule as well. So in relation to civil proceedings and criminal proceedings under 63 to 66, the limitations, the first I've mentioned is that the out-of-court declarant needs to be competent. So if we're talking about a very young child, if we're talking about a very old adult or any other person who may infringe that primary rule as to competence, which is where we started our discussions, then these statements are not going to be almost laundered through another witness and therefore admissible. And then secondly, these exceptions are limited to first-hand repetition. 
So 63 to 66, we need one out of court declarant and one in court reporter, and that is all. So in relation to any statement that one of you may offer to me right now, I, you're the out-of-court declarant. I could later go to court and say, well, AB said to me whatever I can remember about what was said. So I'm repeating what was said outside court. But if I then passed on to person CD what AB had told me, then CD is then secondhand repetition. So under this batch of exceptions, 63 to 66, it's limited to the person who saw, heard or otherwise perceived the, the earlier representation. My suggestion to you here with problem solving is get out a pen, possibly during reading time for an exam, and make a chart as to who A is and who they spoke to. And B might end up being a piece of paper, it might be another witness. And then if B then says it to C, that's where you run foul of that secondhand repetition. That's not a problem generally if the evidence is admissible for some other purpose, but if you're relying on 63 to 66, you're limited to one-hand repetition. So let's do a deep dig into these four provisions. If you're dealing here with civil proceedings, please confine your attention exhaustively to 63 and 66. 63 and 64. If it's a criminal proceeding, it's only 65 and 66. The notes that I've included in the slide become a little repetitive, but that's because I expect that you might move straight to that slide. Next question. With the proof the existence of a fact, does that mean that a statement which proves that a certain fact is not possible means the statement is admissible and hearsay is not required? I'm struggling to think of a relevant example. I'm struggling to think of a relevant example as well that wouldn't fall into one of the other categories like, for instance, um, an admission. So let's Admissions aren't a good example because admissions are, are admissible as an exception to the hearsay rule, but let's say they weren't for the purpose of this short answer, otherwise I'll have to take it on notice. A statement which proves that a certain fact is not possible may mean that the statement is admissible. If a person professes knowledge that a person didn't commit a crime, for instance, let's twist that example, that's not an admission but that might be a situation where a person out of court has said X couldn't have commit the, committed the crime because dot, 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 and they may reveal knowledge as to who the true offender was or something of their belief or something like that. The way that that works is you still need to look at the words that were used and what was intended to assert by those words. So it could prove a negative, it could prove a positive, there's no difference. So even if a hearsay statement uh, was uh, uh, relied upon to prove a negative, it still comes back to whether the person intended to assert that fact. So you then need to go back to whether the person was acting in a willed and deliberate and conscious way in choosing their words. And if so, then you still run foul of that hearsay rule. Now, we're going back to civil proceedings 63 and 66, which become quite straightforward once you've looked at them a few times. 63 preconditions are these. So now mental map, we've reached the point where we've got an out-of-court declarant and an in-court reporter. You've looked carefully at the previous representation and you've concluded that it's a fact that the maker intended to assert. 
So it falls foul of the hearsay rule under 59.1 unless it falls within an exception. Next stage is you're dealing with civil proceedings and query whether the out-of-court declarant is not available, which I'll get to in a moment. We're told under 63.2 the hearsay rule does not apply to evidence of the representation that's given by a person who saw, heard or otherwise perceived the representation being made or a document so far as it contains the representation or another representation to which it's reasonably necessary to refer in order to understand the representation. So in civil proceedings, out-of-court declarant not available, the Evidence Act indicates that's not a problem. Prima facie. We may run into difficulties with prejudice, but we can get to those in a moment. Now, not available is defined in the Dictionary of the Act, um, which I've included at bullet point one at slide seven. So a person's not available if they're dead, if they're not competent to give evidence for some reason other than um, the Section 62 problem, or it would be unlawful for the person to give evidence, or all reasonable steps have been taken to try to get the person to give evidence, but they um, haven't been able to be brought to court. If such a scenario arises and notice requirements have been satisfied under Section 67, then the provision is triggered. So the notice requirements under Section 67 is that the party that is purporting to rely on this section needs to put everyone else on notice that they've made these attempts to procure the witness to give, court, to give evidence or they're deceased and that they intend to rely on this provision. But... It may be that by reason of the absence of the out-of-court declarant, the last bullet point on slide seven, there's still that discretion to exclude, which may need to be invoked, and there's still the discretion to limit the use of the evidence if the um, incapacity of that out-of-court declarant to come to court may mean that the fact finder may be left with a false impression of the words that were used or the intention behind the words. So it's a bit of a twist. Under the common law, that evidence would might have been inadmissible, but the way that the Evidence Act works is to consider the evidence is prima facie inadmissible. It's admitted, so it's saved by the provisions of Section 63, but it can still be excluded under 135 or limited under 136 if the risks um, mean that we might be left not only with not the best evidence, but the fact that it's tainted by other prejudice. Now, the adjunct is civil proceedings if the maker is available, um, Section 64. Now, Section 64 actually carefully conceals two exceptions. So there are two provisions here where evidence that would otherwise be inadmissible under the hearsay rule is saved. The first is 64.2. The hearsay rule will not apply to evidence of the representation given by a person who saw, heard or otherwise perceived the representation being made or a document so far as it contains the representation or another representation to which it's reasonably necessary to refer in order to understand the representation if it would cause undue expense or undue delay or would not be reasonably practicable to call the person who made the representation to give evidence. So the 64.2 exception arises where we have a witness who is available, but for reasons including expense or delay or other um, matters of reasonable practice, it's very difficult to get them to court. In such a case, the evidence may be saved under 64.2. 
And next, 64.3, if a witness is being called to give evidence, the hearsay rule won't apply to evidence of a representation that's given by that person or a person who saw, heard or otherwise perceived the representation being made. So this will allow a witness who is giving evidence in court potentially to narrate evidence of what they said outside court. And the better example of that we'll get to in a moment in criminal cases because the one that uh, exam candidates often remember more clearly is a complaint in a sexual assault case. And this is the civil equivalent. So if a witness is being called to give evidence, then they can give evidence about their own complaints prior to court and other people who heard those complaints can also give evidence of those complaints without falling foul of the hearsay rule. Notes in relation to section 64, I have already foreshadowed one, which is that this actually cunningly contains two exceptions under the same provision. So one is where it's very difficult, inconvenient, expensive to get the witness to court. And two is where they're actually giving evidence. They can also give evidence about their own out-of-court declarations. Um, notice requirements under section 67. So if a party is purporting to rely on this provision, they have to give um, the court and their opponent the heads up. And of course, there is that residual discretion to exclude the evidence or to limit the use of the evidence under 135 and 136. So then we turn to criminal proceedings in 65 and 66. And the exceptions here are a little bit more cautiously drawn than in civil cases because of course there's always the um, heightened concern about prejudice and unfairness in criminal cases. So the way that 65 and 66 work in criminal proceedings um, follows the same pattern as 63 and 64. Preconditions are firstly the out-of-court declarant needs to be competent and secondly the out-of-court declarant must have spoken to the in-court reporter. So it can't be second-hand repetition, it can only be first-hand repetition. 65 also has two exceptions in it. So first is uh, where the hearsay rule will not apply under two to evidence of a previous representation given by a person who saw, heard or otherwise perceived the representation being made. If at the time of the out-of-court declaration, the out-of-court declarant was under a duty to make that representation or representations of that kind or was made when or shortly after the asserted fact occurred and in circumstances that make it unlikely the representation is a fabrication or was made in circumstances that make it highly probable the representation is reliable or was against the interests of the out-of-court declarant at the time that it was made. And I have also tacked on 65 subsection 7 in relation to 2D, a representation is taken to be against interest if the out-of-court declaration tends to damage the declarant's reputation or to show the person has committed an offence which is still pending or to show that the person is liable in an action for damages. The most commonly used exceptions in criminal cases are B and C. So the out-of-court declarant is making a declaration when or shortly after the asserted fact occurred in circumstances that make it unlikely the representation is a fabrication or was made in circumstances that make it highly probable the representation is reliable. Now, they're not perfect comparisons to the old raise geste rule, but in particular 652B is considered to be the legislative replacement of what at common law was known as raise geste. 
So if we're talking about the act itself in a criminal proceeding, that's the crime itself, then statements that are made spontaneously and in the narrative of the crime tend to become relevant and admissible because they're so close to the event itself that they are considered spontaneous and admissible. So those old common law cases about what the victim said in the hours and minutes prior to and leading up to the crime itself, you might think would end up becoming relevant and admissible under 652B, possibly 652C, made in circumstances that make it highly probable that the representation is reliable. So in such a situation, your methodology would set you up nicely. Out-of-court declarant is the victim. In-court reporter is whoever narrates what the victim was saying in the lead-up to the crime itself. So 59-1, out, but then criminal proceedings. So 65, the maker's not available. Alas, it's the victim and they might be deceased. And the the prosecution upon notice would then uh, take the court directly to 652B and or 652C. They often travel uh, as pairs. The second major tranche of exceptions um, under 65, criminal proceedings if the maker is not available, occurs in a situation where a person has given evidence at an Australian or overseas proceedings, so such as committal proceedings, And then the accused was able to cross-examine that person, whether or not they exercised that ability. And then from time to time, we see witnesses who either uh, stray from the jurisdiction or um, can't be caught by subpoena or unfortunately pass away between those earlier court proceedings and a criminal trial. Now, in such a case, 65-3, 65-4, 65-5 and 6 renders potentially admissible that um, the statements that were made prior provided that the accused has had an opportunity to cross-examine that witness in the court proceeding, whether or not they actually took advantage of that opportunity. So firstly, that's the point of admissibility. And secondly, these are haunting words um, for once you move into practice. When it comes to cross-examining any witness, for for instance, at committal proceedings, you need to keep a small part of your practical knowledge on the concept that if that particular witness, who might be an important witness, becomes unavailable between committal proceedings and the trial, then their committal evidence might end up becoming admissible under the hearsay rule, section 65.3 and following. So I've included some notes in slide 13. I've reminded you in relation to when a witness is not available, um, included those provisions freshly, even though they're exactly the same as they were in relation to civil proceedings. Um, A couple of notes in relation to 652B, 652D, which you can have a look at. And the other law arises under 65.3, just that gentle reminder about the accused must have had the opportunity to cross-examine. So um, the preconditions for 65.3 are met, even if, for instance, the accused had the opportunity to cross-examine and didn't take advantage of that opportunity. And notes, of course, the very last one at slide 14, we're now talking about criminal cases. So if the evidence is prima facie admissible under this provision, it can still be excluded under 135 or 137, or its use may be limited under 136. And of course, notice requirements as there are for each of these provisions.
And very last, the microscopic size of the font um, on slide 15 is designed to make sure everyone's paying very close attention. This is criminal proceedings if the maker is available. And before we begin, I I'll mention that this is the provision that is used to render admissible the complaint of a complainant, for instance, in a sex assault case or other cases. So the first complaint is an expression that you hear often if you practice in, um, in trials involving particularly sexual assaults. And section 66 is the provision that makes the, that, that early complaint admissible. So the preconditions are that it's a criminal proceeding, the person who made the previous representation is available, and the hearsay rule will not apply to evidence of the representation that's given by the person who made the representation or a person who saw, heard or otherwise perceived the representation being made if the out-of-court declarant, the person who made the representation, has been or is to be called to give evidence and at the time of making the representation the occurrence of the asserted fact was fresh in the memory of the person who made the representation or and this is a recent amendment the person who made the representation is a victim of an offence to which the proceeding relates and was under the age of 18 years when the representation was made. The determination of whether at the time of the representation the occurrence of the asserted fact was fresh in the memory, see 66.2a. It doesn't need to be a complaint, for instance, at the first available opportunity like the common law used to require or a recent complaint or an immediate complaint. None of that language is used. It just needs to be fresh in the memory, depending upon the nature of the event concerned, the age and health of the person, and the period of time between the occurrence of the asserted fact and the making of the representation. So to give you a worked practical example of this, which um, comes up in court all the time, we might have a complainant um, in a, a sexual case who, in the narrative, an incident occurs that is what's called the asserted fact. Then some time may pass. It might be weeks, months, it might be years. And then a complaint is made. It could be a complaint to a parent. It could be a complaint to a police officer, for instance. Now, that is the point that's referred to in Section 66 as the representation. So the to, to use the language of Section 66, the asserted fact is 66-2A. That is the crime, according to the complainant. Next is, the representation is the complaint. So that is the point at which the complainant mentions on the narrative that I've given to a police officer or to a parent, the asserted fact happened to me. 66 will render admissible that complaint if... The complainant, and via either the complainant, so that is the person who made the representation, can give evidence of their own complaint, and the police officer or parent can also give evidence of that complaint, provided that the weeks and the months still leave the trial judge with the impression that at the time that the complaint was made, the asserted fact was fresh in the memory of the complainant. So that's the mechanism of admissibility of that fact which comes up frequently in these matters. And note, please, and I've incorporated this into my notes, 
um, the law has come a long way from the common law, which tended to require that that complaint be made at the first available opportunity. Now, as the case law indicates, months, even years of passage of time between the asserted fact and the representation will not deny admissibility, provided that it was still made when it was fresh in the memory of the person. And given that the nature of the event concerned is one of those factors that is taken into account in determining fresh in the memory, if it's a deeply significant event for the complainant, you might think that that fact remains fresher longer. Last points, and I'm becoming a little bit repetitive, there's notice requirements under Section 67. We're, of course, we're limited to first-hand repetition. Um, the out-of-court declarant needs to be competent and there are still the discretions to exclude or limit the use of the evidence. I'll just have a quick look at the question and I'll just remind you that um, here, we're still looking at a scenario where you've triaged that there's an out-of-court declarant and an in-court reporter. You've looked at the previous representation and it's a fact that the maker intended to assert. So you've ticked off the 59.1 requirement. You've noted it's a criminal proceeding. So you've moved to 65.66 and that the witness is available. So that's how you've ended up with 66. And then you look to the prerequisites of the provision. The 64.3, the question is, the evidence must be given by a person. A document containing the previous representation is not mentioned. Could you please give an example of what the document referred to in 64.4 might be? It's a very good question. Let's have a quick look back at the slide that relates to section 64. And you'll remember that in a civil proceeding, it might be that if a witness was not, if a maker was not available, then their evidence may be given via a document so far as it contains the representation. So if we were to use the scenario of the complaint, just as we have in relation to section 66 in a criminal proceeding, 64 may permit under subsection 2, if it was a civil proceeding arising out of a sexual assault allegation, for instance, we might have the complainant able to give evidence of the complaint through a person who saw, heard or otherwise perceived the representation being made, that was the parent or the police officer, or it could be the document. So it could be that on the occasion that the complainant reported the incident to police, he or she was encouraged to reduce that to a police report. Now, in civil proceedings, that document could be handed up under 64.2b, a document so far as it contains the representation. Okay, that's point one. Section 66 in a criminal proceeding does not allow a document to be handed up. Instead, we need either the person who made the representation or the person who received the representation to come and give evidence in court. So there's a, two points in, in part that answers that question, which is in a civil proceeding, a, an out-of-court declaration that's made in writing, such as a police statement, is rendered admissible under 64. The, not like in, in 64.3, as you've said, but under 64.2. So if a witness was not available, but, uh, that were available, but it was going to be expensive or it would cause delay, for instance, a document may be admitted. 64.3, on the other hand, and 66. 
do not allow the handing up of the document. Instead, there would need to be a human narrator of what the person saw, heard or otherwise perceived as to the original representation. And the reason behind that is that where it comes to evidence that's potentially more not capable of causing prejudice, that would be a generalisation, but where evidence um, is so assertive that it really requires there to be a narrator, such as in a criminal case, and the legislature has said that's every single criminal case, then it's too much of a truncation of that process simply to allow a document to be handed up. But confer in civil cases, the provisions do seem to allow a document to be handed up subject to that discretionary exclusion or limitation as to its use. Now, the last couple of exceptions, these are set out um, really clearly on the slides. So you'll need simply to read carefully through the provisions that are set out. 69 of the Evidence Act is business records. And this is also a frequent candidate for assessment. So this will relate to an out-of-court declaration that's contained in a document that is or form part, forms part of records belonging to or kept by a person, body or organisation in the course of or for the purposes of a business or at any time was or formed part of such a record and contains a previous representation made or recorded in the document in the course of or for the purposes of the business. So you're looking for any document that uh, consists of those, you know, business documents as, as described and defined. 69.2, the hearsay rule does not apply to the document so far as it contains the representation. If the representation was made by a person who had or might reasonably be supposed to have had personal knowledge of the asserted fact in the document or on the basis of information directly or indirectly supplied by a person who had or might reasonably be supposed to have had personal knowledge of the asserted facts. So this is a shortcut to lots and lots of business records, which you might struggle to find an actual author if the record itself was not admitted. Even if you manage to find an author, they may not have an actual memory of the entry that is formed in the business record. But there's no real and compelling reason not to include the record because there's no reason to think that it would have been falsified. There's one significant exception to this rule under 69.3, and that is the exception, the general exception doesn't apply if the representation was prepared or obtained for the purpose of conducting or for or in contemplation or connection with an Australian proceeding or a criminal investigation or a criminal proceeding. So if there's some suggestion that the business record is compiled in connection with a current proceeding, whether civil or criminal or an investigation, then it loses that ring of plausibility. And on that basis, the deeming provision under 69 will not apply. So it's a broad exception to the hearsay rule and then it's shut off completely if the documents are prepared in connection with pending proceedings. They simply lose that ring of plausibility. And then I refer to your attention 71 and 81. Lastly, 66A. 
um, which I will just open up. So I had foreshadowed that under the old common law, evidence of knowledge, intention, state of mind was considered to be original evidence, by which it was meant that if a person was narrating their health, their feelings, sensations, intention, knowledge or state of mind, then it was considered to be to fall outside the hearsay rule and it was not inadmissible. The uh, caveat was that that state of knowledge, intention, um, sensation, feelings, etc., had to be relevant to a fact and issue. Classic examples included the High Court case of Walton, where the victim, the day before she travelled to the city centre and on the prosecution case that was to meet her killer, was overheard talking about her intention to meet a person at the city centre the next day. So that's an example of a statement of intent that was relevant and admissible, not as hearsay, but as a contemporaneous statement about a person's health. Like the common law under the Evidence Act, if a person is narrating their state of health, their intention, etc., and it's contemporaneous to how they're feeling it, then that's admissible and the hearsay rule does not apply and that's under 66A of the Evidence Act. So that was the rule of hearsay in an hour. As I said to you at the start, traditionally the greatest challenge is developing confidence at that early stage of the problem. So candidates tend to recognise the out-of-court declaration and the in-court reporter, but then they struggle to have confidence in considering whether the statement is relied upon for a hearsay purpose or for a non-hearsay purpose. So this is a watch this space. Now, as I've said, that brings an end to the deep dig into evidence law. So you're actually at the point where you're reasonably well equipped to start using your notes and your understanding to practice some of the old exam papers. When you have a look at old exam papers, you'll note helpfully that the chief examiner has denoted the questions, for instance, that relate to evidence, the questions that relate to ethics, the questions that relate to criminal procedure. My suggestion to you now is that while you're starting to do a deep dig into the next subject, which is ethics, um, have a go at some of those older papers that deal with evidence. Keep the more recent ones fresh, but start using some of the knowledge that you've gained and the suggestions as to technique that you've gained to start gaining fluency and confidence in answering particular problems. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.